but God does. So take heart in that. We're also going to be praying for their current fellowship so that when he leaves to come here, they'll be prepared and God will have someone to take his place. We're going to be praying for another unreached people group. And I had one thing in mind, but then this morning I saw a Facebook post by a good friend of mine and many of ours, Armand, and he posted this on Facebook, so I thought, I don't need to worry about saying this online because he's already done it out there. He's already put it out there. Armand is from Almaty. I met him the first time in 2003. He's been here to Greenville and in our house four or five times over the years. A lot of you have met him. But he posted this, and I want to read this to you this morning. This is the circumstance right now in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Almaty used to be the capital. It's now Astana. But Almaty is still where Armand is from. But listen to his message. We can't answer all of the messages, but thank you for your prayers, friends. Here's my take on the situation in Kazakhstan. It seems like it was an attempted coup led by some high-ranking government officials. Our former chief of the secret police, who used to be our prime minister before, has been charged with treason and arrested. That's how such a well-directed operation could take place and why the local law enforcement seems helpless. Seems helpless. By far, the most organized riots took place in Almaty. What started as a peaceful protest against rising prices turned into a huge mess that is provoked by the organized mobs. Hundreds of police, but not only cars, police cars, government buildings, and shopping malls were burnt down. The organized mobs were joined by random looters and marauders, which is why Almaty is now facing a shortage of, shortage of food and basic supplies. I, along with all of our citizens, can't believe this tragedy took place in our peaceful land. Join me in praying for the order and peace to be restored, for real positive reforms to be made by the new government, and most importantly, for God to open up such wide doors for the good news that the great step has never seen before. So we're going to be praying for them this morning. Then we're going to be praying for our, our time this morning in the Word as we study First John. So join me in prayer. Father, as we come before you, first of all, we thank you for your presence in this place. We thank you for loving us, for drawing us to yourself, for sending Jesus as our Messiah, and for sending the Holy Spirit to comfort us and to lead us into the truth of your word, to mediate for us. Father, we love you. Father, I pray also this morning for Ridgecrest Baptist Church. I pray for their time this morning, that their time of worship would be rich and you would accept their worship in spirit and in truth. Father, I pray for Matt and Valerie, <clears throat> that first of all, Matt's study this week would enrich his family and grow them closer to one another and closer to you. And then as he stands to deliver this morning, Father, I pray that you give him the boldness of the Holy Spirit to preach your word without hesitation. Father, I pray for our future pastor and his family, whoever they may be. We don't know them for sure, but you do know them absolutely. Father, we pray for them and for their, their family worship and their family time that it would be blessed. We pray also, Father, for their current fellowship that they may not even know they're about to go through a transition, but, Father, they are. 
and pray that you would prepare them and keep them comforted and provide your grace for them. Father, I pray for the people in Kazakhstan and specifically as Armand reached out um, to ask us to pray specifically for the people of Almaty, um, for the shortage in food and the shortage of just basic supplies and needs. Uh, he said he had not been able to contact anyone for several weeks because he just now got uh, the internet back, so he was reaching out the first opportunity he had. Father, he doesn't, he doesn't even know the, the, the bottom line truth of what's going on over there uh, because all he's had is the government-sponsored news channels on TV. So he said, we probably know more about what's going on than he does. But Father, we pray for that nation, for that people, that Father, as the, the, the church, the home church, house church has grown since 1992, that it would continue to grow and that this situation would cause just an explosion of the gospel movement in that country. That you would claim these people as your own. Father, I pray for Armand's protection. I pray for all of his friends and Father, the, um, uh, the Rogersons have a number of people in Almaty that they know from their team when they were in, in that area. Uh, pray for them, Father, that you would keep them safe and make provision for them and keep their eyes focused on you. Father, then I pray for our time this morning. As we look into continually and over the next five months in the book of 1 John, Holy Spirit, please teach us the truth of your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Now, as we began this series of studies last week, I spent a lot of time on the history of who John the Apostle is, who many scholars believe is the author of this book, other than God. He was the penman of this book, I'll put it that way. Um, while this book does not have a salutation, like if you look in the, the letters from Paul, his name is always in that first line. He identifies himself as the penman sending this letter. He didn't want any doubts. Well, one of the, um, or several of the commentators that I read in, in preparing for last week made the point that John may not have wanted his name in there at all. He wanted people focused on God. The other thing was, he was so intent on his message, he didn't want to waste even a single word or a single sentence of putting his name in there. He wanted to get straight to the meat of the word. And that's what he did. <clears throat> During the time that John wrote, there was a great deal of pressure in the house churches of wanting to move away from Christ. Or they were adding additional things that they were wanting people to be involved in. And John was saying, and he says through this book over and over and over again that you're going to hear over the next five months, stay true to Christ. Stay focused on the one, the word of life. And that's what we're doing. What had been taught by the apostles during that time had been seen Paul said, I'm sorry, John says that very clearly. We've seen with our eyes, we've heard, 
We've touched the person of Jesus. So they were eyewitness to everything that had happened. And they began this teaching very clearly about 10 days after Jesus ascended and went back to heaven. After his, after his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection, he spent about 40 days with the disciples. He appeared to over 500 people. And then he ascended and went back to heaven. Ten days later, the Holy Spirit appeared to the believers in the upper room. And they went out and preached. And their message remained exactly the same throughout their lifetimes. Truth or fiction? See, we face that question all the time. In things that we're hearing, <laughs> how much fiction have we heard over the last two years? We don't know the, re the genuine truth of what's behind COVID. We don't know. We have to decide what's truth and fiction. That's for another, that's not even important. In the eternal reach of things, that has no value at all. So we're going to be talking about the truth or fiction of who this word of life is. In 1929, the Burlington, Wisconsin Liars Club was formed. I don't know if you've ever heard of the Liars Club, but it's a very real organization. They've had a continuous run of naming the year's best lie, and the fabricator receives an award for that year. The first award winner was a sea captain who reported seeing a three-mile-long whale. He got the first award. You can go on the website and you can see some of the, like the one that won this year, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I don't remember, but I didn't write it down. But it's still going on. People tell fibs, that's a word that we use to soften a little bit, but people tell lies for all kinds of reasons. In 2002, Dr. Sam Douglas, pastor of Ridgecrest Baptist Church, had all of the deacons on a deacon's retreat weekend. And he challenged each of us, I want y'all to tell the most unbelievable story that you can about yourself. It can be true or it can be a lie. But you've got to tell it in such a convincing way that people won't know. So we did. So we, we formed our own little liars club, and there was a reason for this. But the outcome of that was our youth minister at that time, Jason Holloman, I wasn't going to say his name, but I just did. Okay. Jason Holloman told the story that he took, that he dated Jessica Simpson in high school. Yeah, he won the award for the best liar. Come to find out, he really did date <laughs> Jessica Simpson. He took her to the junior senior prom, her senior year. He had a picture. Because Sam had told him what he was going to do, so he said, I'm, I'm just going to bring this picture. He was a little bit prepared. Right, the second place winner of that weekend was I told the story of taking a two-hour nap, 
laying on a microwave dish on the top of a 500-foot tower in Gulfwake, Texas. They told me I was the best liar, even though Jason had actually told the truth. That story was actually true also. Okay, but I was tagged a liar. So the first and second place winner of the Ridgecrest Deacons Liar Club <laughs> were two ordained men. So lies are told for lots of different reasons. Okay. But we have the need to be able to determine what's truth and what's not truth. Any given situation, and here we're working to determine the truth of who is this word of life? Is Jesus truly, is his deity and his incarnation, is that absolutely true? So this morning, if you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. So join me this morning. Beginning in verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. <clears throat> that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the reading of God's Word. Please be seated. <clears throat> so the first question we have to ask, who is, <clears throat> in, in determining truth and fiction, who is the we, our, and us that we see in this first part of this passage. It's the apostles. The ones who had absolute contact with Jesus. And their consistent and unifying declaration that we have heard, seen with our eyes, and touched the word of life, Jesus Christ. This is their declaration because of what they had seen and what they had heard and who they had touched and been touched by. Prior to technology, assisted video cameras, let me back up, prior to technology, assisted video cameras, I put the pause in the wrong place there, but that's available to nearly every cell phone in the world. Prior to that, the most damning bit of evidence to bring into the courtroom was the eyewitness testimony. Is that true? That's true. I started to ask Kelly that earlier. I thought, oh, I'll just put her on the spot and ask her here. So, all right. The eyewitness testimony, and that's what we're dealing with here. A group of men who saw, heard, and touched Jesus. So we know from their testimony is true. The life of Jesus as testified by the apostles and here by, the, by John the apostle, is it true or is it false? Well, I would say because of the declaration, it's absolutely true. 
But I believe we need more than that. Okay. We need more than that. So the question has been around. Is Jesus the promised Messiah? And we know that the Hebrew people had longed for and prayed for this coming Messiah for centuries. They believed the prophecies of God about who the Messiah will be and what he was going to do. Now they had a little bit of a misunderstanding of what the result was going to be when the Messiah showed up. They thought the Messiah was going to deliver them from the oppression of of human governments. In the current time of the time of Jesus, they believed that the Messiah was going to free them from the oppression of Rome. God had a different purpose in this life made manifest. So how do we answer that question? How do we answer that question today? How can we know that Jesus was and is the Messiah promised? Well, in the Old Testament, there are well over 300 prophecies, and some scholars believe it's over 400 prophecies, that directly point to who the Messiah would be and how to recognize him when he showed up. We're going to look at these prophecies. Breathe easy. We're not going to look at 300. (laughs) We're not going to look at even 200. We're not going to look at even 48. Boy, we're going, to look, we're going to look at eight prophecies this morning. So our media team has the first one up here. Can get out of the way over here. Maybe nobody will walk in the door. The first prophecy I want to look at, the true Messiah will come from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. We see that prophecy spoken in Genesis 49 verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's the prophecy. The prophecy was fulfilled in the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 1.16, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So prophecy 1 fact prophecy 2 the true messiah will be a descendant of king david in jeremiah 23:5 we see that prophecy spoken behold the days are coming declares the lord when i will raise up for david a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land This prophecy again was fulfilled in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, 6. And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And then the lineage goes on to Jesus. I didn't want to put that whole passage up there, but y'all can can go back and read Matthew 1. So prophecy 2, fact. Prophecy number 3. The true Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. That's spoken clearly in Micah 5.2. 
But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from, old, is from of old, from ancient days. The prophecy is fulfilled in Jesus being born in Bethlehem. We see that in Scripture in Matthew 2, 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So prophecy number three, fact. Prophecy number four. The true Messiah would be born of a virgin. We see that spoken in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The prophecy was fulfilled when Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. We see that in Luke 2, 7. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Prophecy number four, fact. Prophecy number five. The true Messiah would be the Son of God. We see that spoken in Psalm 2-7. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. And this was fulfilled in Jesus' immaculate conception. Luke 1-35 says, The angel answered her, that is Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child shall be, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So prophecy number five, fact. Prophecy number six. The true Messiah will grow up in poverty. This was spoken in Isaiah 53, 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This prophecy was fulfilled in the life of Jesus. We see written in Mark 6, 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So prophecy number six, fact. Prophecy number seven, the true Messiah will heal the sick. We see this spoken in Isaiah 35, five. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. This prophecy was fulfilled in the miracles performed by Jesus. And in his own words in Matthew eleven five, he says, The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. I will open my mouth in a parable and I will utter dark sayings from of old. This prophecy was fulfilled in Jesus often speaking in parables. We see verified in Matthew thirteen thirty four, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. So prophecy number eight is fact. <clears throat> a 
Why did I pick eight? Well, honestly, I didn't want to go through 300 plus prophecies this morning. I didn't think y'all would sit still for that either. So I picked eight. But more than that, the reason is this. We have some scientific evidence to prove that Jesus, who, that he is who he says he is. Lee Strobel wrote a book back in late 80s, early 90s. I have the book and I forgot to look at the title page, but it's been a while. But it's a book called A Case for Christ. If you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Lee Strobel wrote this book after he became a believer in Jesus, a follower of Christ. He was an investigative reporter who told his editor, I'm going to study this whole Christianity thing and I'm going to debunk this myth and show it to be one huge fabricated lie. And as he put his investigative reporting skills to the test and began to study Christianity, God brought him to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. These are just, this is just one evidence that he talks about. How we have this scientific evidence. That we have reached the right conclusion that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Now, some of the scientific he offered is as follows, and I'm going to read directly from the book here, because I can't make these words up. What are the odds of Jesus fulfilling all of the prophecies and then not being the promised Messiah? Let's talk odds. If Jesus only fulfilled 48 of the 300 prophecies, Rather than all 300, only 48. The odds of him not being the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Okay, that's the number 10 with 157 zeros behind it. If he only fulfilled 48 of the 300, the odds of him not being the Messiah would be 1 in 10 to the 157th power. It's the same odds as winning the Texas lottery 11 times in a row. Okay. And nobody has won the Texas lottery two times in a row. So that's that's how big this is. Now let's make the numbers a little bit smaller and a little bit more manageable. This is why I picked eight prophecies. He says, if Jesus only fulfilled eight of the 300 plus prophecies, the odds of him not being the Messiah, having fulfilled only these eight, would be one in 10 to the 17th power. That's a 10 with 17 zeros behind it. If he only fulfilled eight, the odds of him not being the Messiah would be one in ten to the 17th power. That number actually has a name. 100 million billion. A little more manageable number. (laughs) 
sort of. Strobel goes on to say, I imagine the world being covered with white tiles that are one and a half inches square. Okay, white tiles. Every piece of land is covered with these white tiles side by side. Nothing in the water, just up to the edge of the water. Then he pictured a per, then he also pictured on the backside of one tile was painted red. Out of all the tiles covering all of the land masses on all seven continents, only one tile arbitrarily placed would be painted red. From the top, it looks like all the others. And then he imagined a man being given his entire lifetime to walk anywhere he wanted to, all over the face of the earth, on all seven continents. And then at some point in time, he was given the opportunity just once to bend over and pick up one tile. The odds of him picking up the tile painted red would be exactly the same as Jesus fulfilling eight prophecies and not being the Messiah. Huge. Huge odds. So we can take heart in that. He also went on to say, to give us another little bit of a graphic understanding, since either you're from Texas or you arrived as quickly as you could, but you're here in Texas now and we're glad of that. But if you took silver dollars enough of them to cover the whole state of Texas two inches deep with silver dollars. And you took two silver dollars and marked a black X on one side and mixed them in with those and they're spread all over the state of Texas. And a blindfolded man would go out and arbitrarily bend over and pick up one that was marked with an X, go someplace else, still blindfolded, pick up another one, and it was marked with an X. Same odds. As Jesus fulfilling only eight of the 300 plus prophecies and not being the Messiah. So we have that scientific mathematical evidence that Jesus fulfilled every single prophecy, not just eight, not just 48, and not just 299, but every single one. Strobel says that that number is, in, well, is incomprehensible. Uncomprehensible? However you want to say that. We can't comprehend that number. And yet Jesus fulfilled every single prophecy. So from scientific evidence, we know that that is fact. Jesus is our Messiah, promised from God. But let's think from a human perspective. Because Strobel didn't just look at scientific evidence, he looked at historical data as well. There were many boys who were from the line of David, many boys who were born in Bethlehem, that could have said that they were the Messiah. But who in their right mind would do so? They would be shunned by their families. 
They would be laughed at. They would be ridiculed. They would be beaten. They would have their beard plucked from their face. A crown of thorns crushed down on their head. Beaten. Crucified. So who in their right mind would speak to the fact that they were the Son of God? And that they were the Messiah. So Jesus either truly is the Messiah or, he's complete, or he was completely insane. We know that he did perform miracles. Heal the sick, raise the dead. He was crucified and buried and resurrected. So he is son of God. Fact. The Bible shows us the Messiah, the Word of Life, who existed before time itself, sent by the Father, and in being made manifest to us, fulfilled each and every one of the prophecies that God had put in place to help us recognize this Word of Life, this Christ, this Messiah, this Jesus. Now next, Jesus being the Messiah is not only identified accurately by biblical scientific data and historical data, but it's also witnessed by eyewitness accounts. The apostles and other believers who had walked with Jesus and seen him, heard him, ate meals with him, touched him, and then received his touch. And as I thought about that this week, I, I said tears come to my eyes. The thought of Jesus reaching out and touching me, what, the, what would that have been like? Could I have ever denied him after that? Well, obviously he wasn't denied by anyone that had touched him and had witnessed. In fact, we have more historical data about his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. The crucifixion was documented by Roman documentation. You can still go and see this documentation of a crucifixion that took place on that particular day. And it was, a, it was about crucifying a man called Jesus from Nazareth. So the Romans documented that. Roman guards were experts at crucifixion. They knew exactly what they were doing. We know that he died and did not need the assistance of broken bones, which fulfills another prophecy that not a single bone was broken, because they went to the first thief and broke his legs to quicken his death. They went to the second thief and broke his legs and quickened his death. They came to Jesus and they said, he's already dead. These Romans knew what they were doing. This wasn't fabri fabricated. In John 19, 32 says, the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. We also know by eyewitness account that he was resurrected from the dead. Now these Roman guards were responsible for the body of Jesus. And if they had let someone come and take him out of the tomb, those Roman guards would have been subjected to exactly the same kind of death that Jesus was, was supposed to have died by. 
So they weren't going to let that happen. These guys were killing machines. They knew what they were doing, and they were going to protect their own life. So they wouldn't have just let that happen. Jesus was seen by eyewitnesses after his resurrection. He appeared to over 500 people. Then 10 of the 11 remaining disciples died horrible deaths, martyrs' deaths. For example, Peter was crucified. He has to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner that his Lord was. He didn't back off his story of Jesus being the Messiah and his being resurrected. You'd think if it wasn't true, at some point right before they drove that first nail, he might have gone, you know, <laughs> I made that up. It's not true. He didn't do that. He stuck with the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. All of the other 10 remaining disciples died horrible deaths. And of those 10, if the resurrection was not accurate, you would think at least one of them would have said, no. I made that up. They didn't. They stuck to the story. And much more, many more believers in that first century and since have died martyrs' deaths. Not one have recounted the resurrection. From that perspective, we know that what we read of Jesus being the Messiah is true. Now to return back to our focal passage of verses 1 and 2 in 1 John. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it. Testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Their declaration, Jesus is the prophesied Messiah, no doubt. Because of his fulfilling all 300 plus prophecies that God gave us in order to identify correctly the Messiah promised by God. Jesus is God. He is the incarnate Messiah. And his life, his words, his miracles were witnessed by a large number of people who testified even to their death. Why? So verse 3 gives us the reason why. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. And that's to us today. It's not just the first, first century church, house church. It's also Cross Point Fellowship in 2022. We proclaim to you, to us, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. One of the commentaries that I've been reading is a collection of sermons 
by one of the big-shouldered giants of our Reformed fathers. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh Protestant minister who lived from 1899 to 1981. And this book that I'm looking at is his collection of sermons on the book of John. It's about that thick of all of his sermons. Um, that we're going to cover the book of John, the book of 1 John in five months. It's a little humbling when I look at that book, and he spent years on this, but we're gleaning the truth. We are. He says that this book is the theme, that there is a theme of 1 John that's clearly related to us in 1 John 5.19. So I'm going to jump forward to May and do a spoiler alert here. Okay. 1 John 5.19 says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So there's two positions spoken of. We know that we are from God. Secondly, the other position is the opposite of that. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, of Satan. That's the theme of this book. So that we can know fact versus fiction. We don't even have to know the fiction. We just need to know the fact. We have to make that decision. John again makes this point of our position in Christ in 1 John 5.13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the second statement of his theme. And then this third verse is in 1 John 1, 4. It is the position of the Christian in the world as stated these three times and throughout the book. 1 John 1, 4 that we're going to be looking at next week, God willing. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Our application today. There are three questions that we're faced with as we studied God's Word. Greg pointed this out to the guys who are preaching through this series the other night. It's a great point. We have to first consider what is our fallen condition as revealed in this passage. If we really want to understand what God's teaching us in a passage, Chapel pointed out that we need to ask this question. What is our fallen condition as revealed in this passage. Well, our fallen condition is the inability to know Christ and be reconciled to the Father due to our fallen condition apart from His Word, hearing from Christ through the Holy Spirit. The Word of life is what we need. So then what truth does God reveal to us in this passage? That the manifest presence of Jesus is absolutely true. It is our only hope of salvation and an eternal life with God. That's the truth that he reveals to us. Then the third question, what am I called to do? This is the application. To follow Jesus and to know that our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. To receive that gift of God of eternal life provided by the word of life. Jesus, 
our Messiah. Join me in prayer. Father, as we come before you this morning, we thank you for the evidence that you provide for us in that what has been seen and heard and touched by the apostles, by the people of that time when Jesus was here on the earth, that witnessed his crucifixion, his death, and then his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and because of that, 10 days later, the, the, the disciples in the upper room experienced that mighty wind that we were reminded of just this morning as we came in, as the Holy Spirit descended upon them. That wind we experience today is a reminder of who the Holy Spirit is already in us. Father, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the might of who God is, of who Jesus is, of who the Holy Spirit is, of who our Father is. Father, we thank you for loving us. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. As